Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gypsy Poet Radio here on blogtalkradio.com, front slash Gypsy Poet. That was my latest single that is out on iTunes right now called Home San Antonio. So you may go ahead and go pick that up at any time you like on your iPhone, on your iPad, or anything I from Apple. Uh, This afternoon, guys, I am so excited and ecstatic to have this guest on my show. She is such an amazing, amazing human being. Uh, He has accomplished so much in such a short amount of time. He is not only an author and a researcher, but he has been a coach and an athlete, and you're going to know all about him right here on GPR. I'm excited to introduce him. It's the one and only, the awesome Dagger Stoker. Hello, hello. Are you with me? I'm with you, Sophia. How are you today? It's great to chat with you. Oh, likewise, likewise. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, so let's talk about you a bit. You have quite a list of things that you've done. Uh, first of all, let's talk about you and where you are from originally, and we will go from there. Certainly. Uh, originally, Montreal, Canada, born and raised mm-hmm. there. Um, and then I moved on to Toronto, Ontario, where I taught for 11 years before I ended up where I am now in Aiken, South Carolina. Beautiful place. It is. It's wonderful. I, I'm, I'm blessed. I, I sort of got tugged down here by my wife, who's from this area. I, I met her down here on one of my holidays and and uh, dragged her up to Canada where I was teaching, and she didn't like it all that much. 
And so it, it wasn't too difficult for her to say, let's get back down south and establish a, a career. So I, I kept my teaching going, physical education and science, when I was down here in Aiken. And this is also where both of us kind of sunk our teeth into family genealogy and, and really got into the whole Stoker thing and the Dracula thing at the same time. That's pretty awesome. Um, so let's talk about your coaching career. Um, you, I know that you are not only a, a coach but also an athlete, and it states here that uh, both for U.S. and Canada, and you've been a, a, um, a coach for the Montreal Modern Pentathlon and an inter- for an international and Olympics uh, for the Olympics for Canada for 12 years. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, it was it was interesting, Sophia, because when I was um, in high school in 1976, this is going back. Hopefully some of your mm-hmm. listeners were, were born back then, um, that we hosted the Olympic Games in Montreal. And while I was there, my, my father was actually uh, a serious horseman on the board of the Canadian equestrian team. And it was the first Olympics that drug testing needed to happen in the equestrian sports. And so my dad had knowledge of all this from he owned some racehorses and knew all about drug testing. So I hired the right people. And he hired me and some of my friends to be the folks who would actually escort the horses from the end of the competition venue up to the testing barns. And so I got a really good front row seat in all the equestrian sports and some of the others. And at that time I saw this very strange sport. I knew nothing about it was called modern pentathlon, which is running cross country and swimming, pistol shooting, fencing, and of course riding horses and horses have been in the family blood. So I looked at this and go, I can already ride better than these guys can. Uh, but what about all the rest of things? And so long story short, um, I then started learning how to swim competitively and running cross country in school, went off to college and swam on the swim team, fenced on the fencing team, ran on the cross country team, and you know, really set my sights on the 1980 Olympics, which was only four years away. And uh, to fast forward, I actually spent six months in your city, in San Antonio, as a Canadian guest of the uh, U.S. training center down there at Fort Sam Houston for modern pentathlon, which was some wonderful years. There was a lot of foreigners in there at the time, as well as the Americans who were based there. And we would do nothing else but train, eat, and sleep, and occasionally go see some sports at Trinity or go to the Riverwalk or go do something cool in your town. But we were pretty <laughs> focused. But it was, it was a pretty turbulent time for us, if, if some of your listeners remember that this was um, you know, the boycott year, uh, U.S.-led boycott Europe because, ironically, um, the Americans were protesting that Russia had, had invaded Afghanistan. And, and pretty much the rest of the Western world went along with that boycott. And so all of us athletes, international and, and the U.S. athletes, were really on edge because we, we, we sort of heard rumors the boycott were coming, but we were still training like crazy in case it didn't. And also in the hopes that there would be some alternate games as well for us. And, uh, you know, that threw everything into the mix, like sports and politics, should they mix? And, you know, some of the different countries who were there, you know, their national bodies, you know, we're, we're going anyway. We don't care what the boycott is. We're going. So it was a very stressful time, but it was a wonderful time and really set me off of my career as a, uh, as a physical education teacher myself. I kept going in the sport, but then it just turned out that um, I just couldn't get much better as an athlete, as a full-time teacher. So I turned over to coaching. Uh, within a few years, the coach of the Canadian ladies team, which brought me back to San Antonio as a coach at some of the events that were held down there in uh, March and April 
every year. And um, lo and behold, I got to finally fulfill my Olympic dream. Um, I was asked to take the Canadian men's team to the 88 Olympics in Seoul, Korea. So that's, that's sort of a, a mouthful, um, but it's a lot of, a lot of sport um, a lot, around the world over 12 years. And now I've kind of just settled down to, uh, to sort of focusing on one sport, which is, which is a version of, of tennis, where I actually coached a young American man who, who actually turns 30 today, but he won the world championship last year and I'm his prime coach. So sport is a big thing in my life. And, and it was also a big thing in, in Bram Stoker's life, my, my famous relative uh, writer. And, and uh, I wouldn't say one of them you know, turned me from going one into the other, but I, I still are able to keep sort of, as I say, a sound mind and a sound body is, is a good way to focus on life. I like where you're going with this. This is uh, quite a story, especially the first 10 minutes of my show. Hello. Hey, <laughs> um, wind, wind me up, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay. So now let's talk a bit, let's, uh, if you pardon the pun, sink our teeth into your heritage a bit. Um, what I wanted to ask you is about this, uh, the name Stoker, okay? Uh, was it something that sort of followed you since the womb, or was it something that you were like, I've got to do more research on this guy one day, you know? So, um, so yeah. which one was it, or was it a little bit of both? It, it, it is a little both. I mean, first of all, to, to make sure everybody fully understands that Bram Stoker is my great-grand-uncle. So Bram's youngest brother, George, is my great-grandfather, and Bram was one of seven children. So the crazy thing is, of those seven, only three of them had offspring, and Bram certainly did, and he's got some great-grandsons alive today, and and luckily my great-grandfather had a son and a daughter, but only his son ended up marrying and having children. And his son um, actually came to Canada, and that's how the Stokers in Canada originated, and, and although, you know, sort of the Canadian mentality, sort of that British understated mentality, um, my dad let us know, you know, who we were related to. We did have a couple of first editions of some of Bram's books on the bookshelves that my dad's father had passed down to him. But he never sort of wandered around and beat his chest and said, well, we're, we're relatives of the famous Bram Stoker and, and, and therefore you're, you're privileged or Halloween, everybody should bow down or anything. But it was sort of stated or understated that you got to make your own name. It may, it may be a, a, an interesting name and, and had a good following, but you've got to make a name for yourself, which my father did as a stockbroker and, and, you know, my sisters did as, as uh, scholars and as athletes and, and as I had to do myself, but it wasn't until college that I really fully grasped that Bram Stoker had an impact on the, on the whole world, not just, people around Halloween. I, I started doing a paper on uh, as actually an oral interpretation uh, on yeah. Bram Stoker in a, in a class. And, and luckily it was at that time that McNally and Florescu, two Boston college professors had actually written a book called in search of Dracula. And they were the ones that originally linked mid seventies, Vlad the impaler with the character count Dracula. And they, and they had gone to the Rosenbach museum and sort of figured out that Bram must've seen this and this, and they found his notes in that museum and put things together. So up until about, you know, the 70s, not a lot of people really knew a whole lot about sort of the backstory of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And, and that interested me, but it didn't dominate until really 2003 when I started to 
you know, decide to take a little break from teaching and decide, you know, maybe this is the right time just to really get into family genealogy. And my wife is a, you know, it's very strong in that way in her family. It's, it's very important to her to know her roots. And I had, right. my father had passed away and one of his uncles gave us these boxes of stuff of Irish and, and Canadian um, connections. And luckily the internet was, you know, providing us Ancestry.com. And that was really the time when I got into it and started writing my first fictional book, um, co-authoring with Ian Holt, a, a sequel to Dracula. And, and during that writing process, which took about five years, I really learned a lot about Bram, made contacts with some of the relatives who had little tidbits to give me. And that's really got the whole thing going for me. Oh, I, this, this is fascinating to learn about. Uh, genealogy, uh, in, since 2003, I want to come back to that for uh, that comment a moment. That, uh, that in itself, uh, and up to now, that's been about maybe what, um, almost 14 years that you've been delving into your, in, in, into your history. And you've found yeah. so much in such a short amount of time. I think it's a short amount of time, especially with everything that, he, that was left behind. It's truly uh, amazing and enriching. So, I mean, looking back at it, you uh, you, you took something that, um, you know, that's what a lot of people are doing right now is looking, uh, is looking back at who they are. And, uh, and, you're, and you, what I like about this is that you had, you had time to do it, which is some, I don't think there are enough, there are enough hours in the day to do. Um, now, no, you're, getting you're, my you're right. It can't be enough. <laughs> it's never enough when, when you just, it's, it's like, it's like going down a rabbit hole. Every time you get to one little, one little bump, you know, you, you deflect one way, you find some more information, and you go somewhere else. I mean, I've, I've mm-hmm. got to tell you, the, the, the crazy thing about Bram is yeah. in everything he did, with the books he's written, of course, the fame of Dracula, he never wrote an autobiography. There's, there's been yeah. now five biographies of him, and there's very, very little source material. So what I know biographers are on the search for because I've met many of them and chatted with many of them and, and, and I consult on documentaries. But all we always found so far that's firsthand by Bram is some excerpts from a book he wrote about his famous boss, Sir Henry Irving, called Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving. And in those two volumes, he, he does talk about things that him and Irving did together and him and his wife and him and some of his, the people from the Lyceum Theater and his close friends. So you get a little bit of an idea of Bram talking about himself. But luckily, yeah. he left 125 pages of notes in, in, that ended up many years later in the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. These are his Dracula notes. And luckily, yeah. he kept a journal for 11 years. We know he probably kept more, but thank goodness they ended up in a box with some other books in one of Bram's great-grandson's attics in the Isle of Wight. And this, this, this cousin of mine said when I was you know, doing my research for Dracula the Undead, do you want to look at this thing? And I was like, what is this? And it was this firsthand you know, sort of 11 years of Ram's thoughts on a really wide variety of subjects, as well as practice poetry and things, but just ideas for future stories, observations. And that really, Sophia, gave me a chance to say, let me get into this guy's head. Um, not what people write about him, but what he, how he sees the world himself. And then there's one other little piece I just need to throw in here is that yes. there was only one interview that Bram 
ever gave anybody. I don't know if anybody requested and he turned them down, but James Stoddard, two months after Dracula came out, interviewed him in the British Weekly, a newspaper in London, and gave a little insight into his research and his writing and, and what he was, was meant to sort of the message he was passing on in Dracula. So 120 years later, you know, this is the 120th anniversary this year of the book coming out. People are still finding things about yeah. Bram and about the book. They keep turning up in weird places. It's, it's just so incredible that this book has had such an impact, but we still keep finding out more and more stuff about it because there's, you know, people like me that are interested in lots of uh, academics that write their doctoral theses and their master's thesis on it as well. Right. That's great to have, and uh, and and you being the an epitome source. I mean, I've I've uh, been I've become fascinated when I took a course in uh, Romantic literature, and then later I took a course in Victorian lit. Um, it, it for some reason they just uh, the, these two really. I, I just fell in love with these two types of literatures, you know, the romantic literature, which is really about feelings and emotion. And the Victorian period was about ideas, innuendos, and insinuations, you know. Um, and and um, the thing about Dracula that, that I like is it really um, epitomizes the Victorian era because there was a lot of um, dark obsessions and secrecies that people had. And in a way, he found um, a way to, to express them in this book. Because there was a lot going on. It was a, a book that you once recommended to me that uh, that really drove me forward uh, to to really uh, search and find. Um, you you, uh, you yeah. recommended a, a book to me a couple of years ago, uh, and the name of that book is called uh, Dracula: the, the Film and the Legend. It's Bram Stoker's Dracula: The Film and the Legend, and it's uh, written by Francis Ford Coppola and James B. Hart. And I, yeah. I um, this gave me a really clear picture of the uh, not just the book itself, but what was going on in, in the Victorian period in its entirety. So this um, this really gave me an inside look as to what goes on in uh, in, in that time period. Um, what well, you got to realize that, that you know pe- people don't always quite get that Bram wasn't just a writer and it wasn't just sort of imagination that he was coming up with neat stuff. But right to your point to your point about being sort of social commentary, Bram was a theater manager. And a theater manager, especially one for the famous Sir Henry Irving, who both the two of them were trying to revolutionize the theater in general and get more, you know, make it of higher standing and people coming to it and in, increasing the role of actors and actresses in society by them being better behaved off the stage, uh, better um, performing on stage, better costumes, better accents and dialects. And so on. And so Bram's life was knowing his audience, knowing what would push the buttons, what would interest people. To, you know, they want to scare them. You want to make them laugh. You want to put them in fantasy land. So I believe, and I can back that up by, by saying, look at his lost journal that I found and published with Elizabeth Miller. He was very aware of what was going on about him. And that's why when he wrote Dracula, he placed so much of the action in real time, in yeah. real places, with real people, and real issues. And some of those real issues focused on, obviously, you know, the role of the, of the modern woman, Mina, the role of science and technology, the sort of the battle between Seward, 
who is the consummate sort of scientist, a little bit narrow-minded in his process, but then Van Helsing, who is the guy that has all this sort of understanding of supernatural and mythology and so on, and is trying to get the band of heroes, which has the aristocrat, Homewood, and has the newspaper man, Harker, and who's a little bit like Bram, by the way, um, and Mina, who's a little bit like Bram's mother, and Lucy, who is sort of the, you know, the rich lady who can't decide, you know, who to marry because she's got three suitors, and the American. So he's got this cross-section of people, and yet Van Helsing is having to say, look, the only way we can really figure out what's going on here is open up your minds. You know, there, there are mysteries here that we may not understand, but don't be closed-minded about it, otherwise we'll never catch them. And to me, that's the crux of, of this whole story, is opening up your mind just because you can't totally fathom it with our present understanding of things. Realize that you may not get it, but some of this technology is good stuff. Some of this thing, you know, it's going to save us from the perils of the supernatural unless you can really embrace it. Um, now let's get into Dracula the person here. Um, the the character that he created is based on a an actual person, obviously. It's uh, as Vladimir Tepish. In other publications, I've seen him uh, uh, published as Vladimir the Third, and one particular source I once had uh, mentioned him as Vladimir the Fourth, but um, I um, I'm not sure which one of the two, but I put him down as Vladimir the Third on, um, on on the blog yeah. talk montage. Um, the third well, is correct. Bit... The third is correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Um, that's what I thought. He's, um, he, it's, and, it's and interesting. I know, that, I know that he was the first Wallachian king. Yeah, he was the, the first, yeah, first Wallachian king to rule Transylvania at the time. When, um, and I think he took it as a, as a, as a young man, too. Uh, the question I have. Yeah, yeah he had three so reigns. He, it, was, it was a tragic time for him because, I mean, it was really tragic. I mean, actually. People say, oh, he's a horrible guy, but you've got to realize, put everything in perspective, there was a lot of horrible things going on. And you know, this is this little country wedged in the middle of the Christian uh, Austrian-Hungarian Empire and then the, the Ottomans on the other side. And so his father you know, was, was killed in a horrible way, and so was his, one of his brothers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so he inherited this, this throne and had three different reigns. The, short, the first one was very short, and this was only – not long after he he finally was released from the Ottomans, he was really there, him and his younger brother, as hostages, which is kind of a weird thing that happened. But in those days, the powerful Ottomans were kind of fed up with the Wallachians and Transylvanians, you know, sort of fighting these little skirmishes every time they would come over and try to attack somebody over on the Romanian side of the Black Sea. He said, look, you pay us a certain amount of money each year. You give me your two boys. And we'll keep them safe, but as long as we have your boys, you just stop doing all this fighting. Uh, otherwise, we'll torture and kill them. So these boys kind of went off to a prolonged summer camp, so to so speak. And and when it was time to release them, Radu, the younger brother, stayed. He quite liked the treatment in the royal court. Vlad came back with a vengeance, and he was, he managed to get enough people in an army, and he overthrew whoever was in, you know, in, in charge at the time and started fighting back at the at the Ottomans, but unfortunately lost his, either his first or his second battle, and he lost his power. But then he grew up, and about three years later, he had enough sense to do a little more politicking and get some more powerful allies from the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Um, and then he was really a force for another five or six years. Uh, but it was, it was a turbulent time, and, he, and to rule in those days, you had to rule in a very bloodthirsty manner. 
And this is yeah. where Vlad III got the nickname Impalement. Um, yeah. And I like to say, look, he didn't invent this. You know, the mm-hmm. Bulgarians invented it or the Ottomans invented it, but Vlad used it uh, to perfection, and he got the best reputation, the nickname The Impaler, which was a you know, pretty horrifying way to die because it was slow. It was obviously a big stake, you know, up, up the person's you know, rectum, and then they'd slowly slide down it, and over the course of a couple of days, they would they would die. So this was a bloodthirsty ruler who didn't have, you know, a, a, a rosy life. Um, and somehow his reputation, you know, got around. There was the beginning of printing presses. The Saxons, being the Germans in the country, were very upset with him because as they moved into parts of uh, this country, um, of Transylvania, Wallachia, Moldavia, and they started trading, Vlad required that they pay tax because he needed every piece of money he could get to keep a big enough army to fight off the Ottomans. And when they wouldn't pay their taxes, he would impale them. And so the Saxons who had the printing presses, and they were very advanced, the Germans were, and they set up all this sort of negative uh, propaganda against Vlad. So what we learn today is because back in those days, the the Germans had a big axe to grind about Vlad. Well, pressing the button about 500 years Luckily, in this Rosenbach Museum, one of these pamphlets and a woodcut of Vlad the Impaler eating a meal of bodies around a forest of people impaled was discovered by McNally and Florescu when they went in there uh, looking for information about Vlad. And from from this visit into this museum, they were presented by the director of the museum this set of Bram's notes. And in the notes we saw that Bram had had gone into a library in Whitney, England, and found a book by William Wilkinson. And in this book, it mentioned Vlad Dracula, and it gave a a brief history of his father being Order of the Dragon and what his mission was and how Vlad fought the Turks and how this guy's name, Vlad, was his nickname was Dracula or Devil. It also meant Order of the Dragon, um, which was the sort of Christian sect that was, you know, sort of a, a, a like the Crusaders, but a small group to protect the, the Christian interests in in, in uh, Italy and in, in Europe. Um, and and Bram saw this, and we kind of know by the timing of his notes. And in those notes, he had literally had an original name for his his count, which was going to be Wampir, which is not nearly as scary as Dracula, but. No. He crossed out Wampir in this list of names in his book, and he replaced it with Dracula. And all the researchers figured this happened because of the timing of the visit to Whitby and looking at the Wilkinson. But we really, the, the amazing thing is we don't know what else Bram knew about that other than one more book that Bram referenced by James Samuelson called Romania Past and Present that has one page with information about this Vlad being an impaler, and also being known as a devil. So the rest could be something Bram knew about from other sources, possibly this visitor called Arminius Fanbury, but it's also something that maybe he never wrote down, but he heard about. And, and I'm sorry to be rambling, but it's a really long, drawn-out kind of mystery of what exactly did Bram Stoker know, and how did he connect this famous fictional bloodthirsty creature with some real living person that seems to, other than not being a vampire, 
he seems to earn the nickname quite well. What do you think, Sophia? I think so. I think you have a point about that. He's he's earned it pretty well. Um, there have been lots of there's been lots of literature spawned after that, uh, and and it's created a whole culture of, of vampires and, and fun stuff like that. But what I really like is the historical aspect of what you've given me this afternoon. Okay, uh, with a little over a minute left, I just want to say I cannot uh, begin to express my gratitude for you to call in this afternoon. You've done such an awesome job talking about uh, Bram Stoker himself, and there's also a lot about you there. Um, I just want to announce to everybody that's listening in, uh, you, uh, you can be sure to find uh, Dacre Stoker on Facebook. Uh, he always has um, posts that are up and running of, of various different things that involve uh, visits, to, uh, vis- visits to Romania, as well as uh, the publication of his books, including the, the latest one that's, uh, that, that's out right now called Stoker on Stoker, The Mysteries Behind the Writing of Dracula. It's a keynote presentation. I, I, I hope that there's a YouTube video of you presenting that. <laughs> Someday there will be. There's not right now, but someday there will be. Yes, and uh, um, all these wonderful things that you've uh, that you've uncovered with uh, these these things uh, that you've the last from Stoker, the lost years, that, uh, and with with Elizabeth Miller on Ropes and Press, published in 2000. So be sure and catch that. Okay. So before I go, I just want to say thank you again, Dacre Stoker, for calling in and having a wonderful half hour with me. And I hope that you come in for a part two. <laughs> well, you're both welcome. I've got a soft spot for and also for San Antonio, and, and you're both. So, Sophia, thank you for hosting this, and it's a real pleasure chatting with you today. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much. All right, guys, before I sign off, say ideal for now. I just want to say uh, check out anything on Dacre Stoker. You can find him on Google. You can find him on Facebook and anywhere social media platforms are found. So be sure and check that out. Thank you guys so much. This is Gypsy Poet signing off saying adio for now.